you have a good week? Okay, like thumbs up. Like, yes, it was a good week. Eh. Or, no, it was absolutely terrible. Okay, oh, two. Jeez. Two thumbs up. That's good. Um, Just, if you are not, I mean, this is is your first time here today. We just want to say really just welcome. Um, You know, we, we try and do things as family as possible. So we're not, you know, kind of like a production service kind of where we come in on a Friday morning and we've got all the bells and the whistles and the smoke machines and the, that's not our jam at all. Um, we want to be a family. We just want to do life together. And I just want to say something about Friday mornings. This isn't kind of like the sum total of our walk with Christ, right? This is kind of like the, mid, the midpoint. This is kind of the halftime huddle. Um, and so for me, I always look at it like worship is a time where we praise God for the six days that came before. And the word is kind of like encouragement for the six days to come. And so this is really what we're, we're about here. We just we want to see you happy. We want to see you in a place of fullness, in a place of wholeness, um, living out the finished work of the cross so that you can be free, so that you can minister to the people around you. Because there's a world that is desperate and hurting and confused and scared, and we get to be just a little bit of him in every scenario, every environment that you're in. And so we just really want you to be encouraged. Um, so please, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here and please be welcome. All right, um, I'm going to be just sharing a little bit on a posture of praise. Um, and so to be able to do that, I need to just quickly chat to you about what the word posture means. All right, it's not one of those things that people shout at you. I remember my one sister, she, um, um, she had terrible posture, like really bad posture. Um, I've got bad posture because I play multiple instruments, so I'm constantly huddled over something. I spent three hours last night over a guitar at Applebee's, so my posture sucks, I know. I'm sorry to all those people that are offended by my posture. Um, but my one sister, she used to have a pretty, um, a pretty nasty kind of like habit. And my dad used to take, and I don't agree with this, by the way. Um, my dad used to take a wooden spoon and put it into the back of her pants when she sat at the dining room table just to make her aware of her posture. And, um, I mean, it seems awful now, but, I mean, I understand where he was going with it, right? And so it's just this thing to kind of make her aware of her posture. And so if I look at the dictionary definitions, because I'm a teacher, I really enjoy defining things before I, you know, do things with it. Um, the first meaning is the posture in which someone holds their body while standing or sitting. And I think oftentimes when we think about the posture of praise, I think about, well, am I putting my hands up? I'm on my knees. I'm on my face, you know. And yes, there are certain things, you know. Um, I know Daniel, I, I laugh. Every time we sing a song like I bow down, he's like, I can't sing like I bow down and worship. Like, and I'm standing. That makes no sense. And so he likes to have the physical outside of what he's doing match what his heart's doing on the inside, right? And that's where the second definition comes from. It's a particular approach or an attitude. And so what I would like to um, put forward to you today is that your posture of praise isn't necessarily about what your body is doing. Yes, part of that is important. But it's more about what's happening inside here. It's about your approach to God. It's about your attitude towards God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. I need two volunteers, pretty please. Any two volunteers? Oh, great. Courtney! Okay, I need another volunteer, please. Ah, Carl, come, please, man. Thank you. Okay, so what we're going to do is the following. 
Courtney and Carl are going to stand there next to each other, facing me. All right, Carl, you're going to turn around and face the wall. Okay, Courtney and Carl, your instruction is to do everything that I do. Okay? All right, go. All right, what's the problem here? He's not, he, he, can't, he can't see me. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. All right, thanks, guys. You can go have a seat. Just a very silly little in, um, illustration. But what I want to say to you is that when we live in a posture of praise, my eyes are on him. See, if my heart and my attitude and my approach to life is I am praising him, I'm worshiping him, my eyes are on him. And when my eyes are on him, I can follow him. That means that I can see what he's doing. I can hear what he is saying. I'm aware of him and therefore I can follow him. And so this is why this is so important. And that's the kind of like the, the objective of what we're talking about today is that a posture of praise allows me to turn my eyes on Jesus so that I can follow him. All right, so Carl, I mean, you said it from the start, right? If, if, I'm, not, if I'm not actively worshiping God and I'm kind of just doing my thing, it's very difficult to follow where he's going. It's very difficult to see what he's doing. So there are three people in the Bible that I think stands out quite significantly when it comes to this posture of praise. And the first one we're going to look at is David, All right? He's kind of like the old-timey guy, the, the one that had a terrible lifestyle and yet was <laughs> said to be a man after God's own heart. And this is because of his posture of praise, his attitude and his approach to praise. Psalm 103 verse 1, I'm going to give you a chance to turn there. Take out your Bibles, please. Or your cellular tellulas. All right, Psalm 103, verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. There are so many scriptures in the Bible where David is saying that with all my being. Everything inside of me must praise. He says, my soul will sing. My soul must sing. It's almost like there's no choice. And we'll get a little bit into that later. So just kind of tab that one in your head, bookmark it for a second. There's a sense of my soul must. It's like he doesn't have a choice. Psalm 29 verse 1 to 2. Acknowledge the Lord, you heavenly beings. Acknowledge the Lord's majesty and power. Acknowledge the majesty of the Lord's reputation. Worship the Lord in holy attire, and some translations say splendor. And there's just, again this absolute call to worship, a call to praise. One of my favorite portions of scripture is in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14 to 22, when David got a little undignified. It says there, now David, wearing a linen ephod, was dancing. I guess basically he was dancing in his undies in the street. I don't advise. I mean, you could get in trouble here. Just pretend. <laughs> was dancing with all his strength before the Lord. David and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, shouting and blowing trumpets. As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michal, uh, looked out the window. 
When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. They brought the ark of the Lord and put it in its place in the middle of the tent that David had pitched for it. Okay, um, just kind of like a small in kind of parentheses. The ark of the covenant was basically the manifest presence of God in a box. All right, because we didn't have access to that because the veil had not yet been torn. All right, sin came in, kingdom of man came in, and basically uh, the presence of God was then put into this Ark of the Covenant. And this thing had been gone for some time, and now David's bringing it back. So he's pretty pumped about it. Like, he's really happy. Then David offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. When David finished offering the burnt sacrifices and peace offerings, he pronounced a blessing over the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. He then handed out to each member, okay, so he gives them a whole bunch of stuff. Hang on. Uh, verse 20, when David went home to pronounce a blessing over his own house, Michal, Saul's daughter, came out to meet him. She said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself this day. Right, some sarcasm in the Bible there. He has exposed himself today before his servants, slave girls, the way a vulgar fool might do. David replied to her, it was before the Lord. I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and appointed me as a leader over the Lord's people, uh, Israel. I'm willing to shame and humiliate myself even more than this. But with the slave girls whom you mentioned, let me be distinguished. Now, Michal's uh, um, Saul's daughter had no children to the day of her death. So what do we learn from David? We learn that he worshipped in many and in all instances. There were multiple times where he was shacked up in some cave running for his life, and again, he worshipped. There were multiple times where he did something wrong, and he worshipped. There were multiple times where he was just overcome by his beauty and splendor and worshipped. He praised God's faithfulness, his splendor, his strength, he sought help, he sought mercy, and he sought protection. All of this was an act of worship. <clears throat> he worshipped in, in a manner that was unashamed. His worship was not for the sake of others, it was for the glory of his king. When she was saying that you made yourself a fool in front of other people, he said, I wasn't dancing for them. I was dancing for him. David was far from perfect, yet he was a man after God's own heart because of worship. So much so that even though Saul despised him, he would call David in to come and worship because it drove evil spirits from Saul. His worship gave someone else freedom. David respected and treasured the presence of God. I mean, it says in the scripture that he pitched a tent specifically just for the Ark of the Covenant. He made space for it. It wasn't just a, an afterthought or a, um, ooh, shoot, where are we going to put that Ark thing? If, right? It was, there was a space prepared for it. It wasn't like the kind of, it came in and they're like, okay, chaps, where are we going to put this chap? Like, there was a space made. He pitched a tent for it. There was respect for the presence of God. He treasured it. If we look at Paul and Silas, 
our second little lesson from the Bible, Paul and Silas in Acts 16, verse 25 to 26. I'll give you a moment to turn there. The reason why it's good to kind of go there for yourself is like if you want to bookmark it or highlight it or something and you kind of go back to it, it really helps. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chairs, uh, chains came loose. It's amazing to me that their praise shook the foundations of the prison. It wasn't just that the chains came loose. The chains came loose as a result of the foundations being shaken. And so what do we learn from Paul and Silas? We learned that their circumstance did not deter their worship and their praise. I mean, prisons back then wasn't kind of like free housing and food. It was like, it was rank. There was nothing nice about it. All right, there was, there was no sewage system. There was no like kind of cozy bed and mattress. It was gnarly. And so their circumstance was grim. It must have stank in there. It must have been cold in there. It must have been wet. A whole bunch of really uncomfortable things were happening to them. And still they sat and they praised. And again, like what we saw with David, where he would worship and the spirits would leave Saul, their worship led to everybody's chains being broken, not just their own. Everyone's chains came loose. And it goes back to um, this idea of it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. When we worship and when we praise, we allow an anointing to come into the room. And it's that anointing that will break a yoke because this oil, like chains just slide off. Their freedom was a consequence of praise. I think it's also really important to note that they weren't in prison because of something they did. Right? Sometimes we worship from the prisons that we put ourselves in. Right? And we, we're like, okay, God, I'm going to praise you because like, I did something and now I'm in trouble. Yeah, that's great. And I think David did that a lot where he messed up and then he praised and worshiped and asked God for mercy. But what's important to note here is this wasn't a prison that they were in because of something they did. Their praise was not blackmail, it wasn't penance, it was pure, legitimate, God-centered, God-honoring worship. And the consequence of that was freedom. And just one step further, the consequence of that was also the God, his life was affected by it. He saw all these chains come off and he freaked out, he was about to take his own life. And they said to him, hang on, hold tight, we're all still here, it's okay. And so they got to witness to him. Mary from Bethany. Now I'm saying that because I did a bit of a, I was kind of like, hey, we keep talking about Mary, but they're like a million of them in the Bible, right? So the acts of worship that are recorded in the New Testament are all Mary of Bethany. She's the same Mary, all right? This is Lazarus's sister, Mary, all right? Um, so she's Mary from Bethany. In Luke, I'm uh, sorry, in John 12, verse 3, spoke a little bit of, um, uh, spoke about this a little bit last week. Then Mary took three quarters of uh, a pound of expensive aromatic oil, 
um, from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. She then wiped his feet dry with her hair. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfumed oil. Now, as they went on their uh, sorry, that's the next scripture. Um, Luke 10, verse 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part, and it will not be taken from her. And so what we learn about from Mary is that her worship was costly. All right, I spoke about that a little bit last week. It cost her something. It cost her her dignity, and also it cost her resources. Her worship went against cultural norms and traditions. All right, it wasn't normal for her to come and do what she did. I mean, to use her hair to clean his feet. That wasn't, that wasn't normal. Right? It wasn't normal for her to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. All right? That was kind of what the men did. The women were out doing all kinds of things, kind of making sure that everyone was fed and hosted, etc. The men were the ones that sat and spoke. So it was, it was culturally weird for Mary to have done what she did. So much so that Mary, Martha felt vindicated and justified in coming to Jesus and saying, hey, could you please scold my sister? She's being a little lazy. And so <clears throat> what we learn here is that our worship will go against cultural norms sometimes, and that's okay. It will go against the things that are traditional to us, all right? I come from a very non-traditional um, church background as a child. I used to go visit my family up in Pretoria, and they would be in a very traditional church, and I, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, oh, this is so weird. Um, some of those words in Afrikaans were so big that it was hyphenated from one sentence to the next. I was like, how is an Afrikaans word that long? That was amazing. I couldn't even pronounce it. I was like, okay. it was unbelievable to me. It didn't make sense. None of it made sense to me. And what was beautiful about that is that Mary was sitting there trying to make sense of the things that Jesus was saying. And it went against cultural norms and traditions. It wasn't just a case of like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing things the way that, you know, they get done. She was seeking out understanding, seeking out truth. Her worship revealed and exposed the idols and intentions of those around her. In the first scripture that we read, she exposed Judas's idolatry, his love for money. In the second one, her worship exposed Martha's need for works. What Martha was doing wasn't wrong, right? And honestly, one of the best messages I've ever heard preached was the one Nicole shared on Martha's retest and how she kind of has these three opportunities and Martha does come right by the end. <laughs> There's hope. Um, it's, it was, honestly, it was such a good sermon, my friend. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Martha was concerned with doing the things and the hosting. And I mean, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. But what Jesus was saying was that there are some things that are a priority. And so idolatry is that. It's priorities. It's whatever I prioritize over something else and over God in this case. 
the worship anointed Jesus. I mean, that's so amazing. Like, can you imagine that this woman that came from a really, like, shady background, she was the one that anointed his feet before his burial. That's remarkable. I mean, how many years later, and we're still talking about it. That's how impactful that moment of worship was. Her worship affected those around her. The fragrance filled the room. So, how is this relevant? In John 4, verse 19 to 26, it says, Jesus was having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. All right? And he ends off and he says to her, oh, sorry, she says to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Right? So they had very kind of strict places where you could and couldn't, etc. And Jesus says to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But, and this is the important thing, verse 23 and 24, but a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So why and how is all of this relevant? How do we take these stories that we've heard from the Bible and we look at our own posture of praise? It begins with this. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Not in a place. Your worship isn't confined to what happens here on a Friday morning. This is one part of it, is one aspect of it. Music is an aspect of it. This isn't the sum total of worship. Because if worship is your attitude and your approach to God, then it cannot just be what we do here on a Friday morning. This is a celebration of it. Worship is not in a place like a church or your designated quiet time space. It's from a posture, from an attitude, from an approach. So that means it's not the place that matters. It's your heart. It's your attitude. And so what he says in verse 23 and verse 24, it is our spirit that is responding to his spirit. If we're worshiping in spirit and truth, it's his spirit that is calling out to us and us responding to him in spirit and in truth. We are responding to his nature. It is a response to knowing the truth about him, the truth about yourself, and the truth about others. That's how we worship in spirit and in truth. He reveals himself to us and we worship from a place of truth, knowing who he is, knowing who I am, and knowing who we are. It is time for us to be reconciled with our identity in Christ so that we can wholeheartedly worship in spirit and in truth. If you don't understand who you are, if you don't understand your sonship, if you don't understand who he has created and called you to be, how can you worship in spirit and in truth? If I don't know who I am, 
if I don't know that I'm allowed to worship him, if I have any sense of self-doubt or self-criticism or self-hatred, there's no way that I'm gonna step into the presence of God and worship him with everything inside of me because I'm gonna feel like I'm not worth being there. I'm going to feel like I don't deserve to be in his presence. Oh, my friends, I'm telling you that's a lie. He has called you to it. His spirit is reaching out to yours so that you can worship in spirit and in truth. Know who you are in him. And I can tell you now with everything that I am, it starts with what we saw, turning yourself around and looking at him. Because when you look at him, you are overcome with love from him. When you are overcome with love from him, you realize that a God of gods, the creator of everything, the king of kings with all his majesty and all his splendor still chose to love you. The way that you are. All of a sudden, I get very patient with myself and I get very patient with the people around me because I understand that to worship him in spirit and in truth means that I accept who I am in him. It is time for us to be set free from idolatry, selfishness, a lack of compassion, passivity, greed, lust, and everything else that hinders us from spirit and in truth. Passivity is a big one. Just this kind of, I just, I'm not going to do anything. I don't know what to do, so therefore I do nothing. It is time for us to be David's who respond to everything in praise and worship, to be like Paul and Silas in praise in the darkness, not to gain something, but to give something. It is time for us to be like Mary, who had her priorities in check, who broke free from customs and societal norms and expectations and expressed a love for Christ. I know that we come from different backgrounds. I know that we all come from different traditions where things are done a certain way in church. But can I offer to you this idea that maybe the slate is clean? What if, what if we worship so hard that we shake the foundations of the societal prisons that we've been in for so long, the traditional prisons that we've been locked away in where we are not authentic, nor worshiping in spirit and in truth? What if, Rose of Joy, what if we raised a voice that was so loud and worship that was so loud that it cracked the very foundations of everything that you've been indoctrinated with. The institutionalized church must fall. <laughs> Those monuments must come down. That was never Jesus' intention. It can't be because it excludes. The institutionalized church says it's a hierarchy. It says that only certain people can and some can't. That's hogwash, that's not what I read in my Bible. cannot say this enough. It is time to be free. This revival is not a mass gathering of people that worship 24-7. It is a rising up of saints, you and me, all of us together, a people that are free. Like, I mean free. Not passive, not ignorant, not oblivious, free. You know when they say ignorance is bliss, right? You just don't even know that that's happening. It's time to get aware and get over it. Right? It's time to be free. Free from idolatry, free from passivity, free from bitterness and unforgiveness, free from self-loathing, free from hurts and baggage. It is time. 
Make like Elsa and let it go. We can do this. Why? Why is it important? Because there's a world out there that needs to see undignified worship, a sold-out follower of Jesus, a perfume-pouring, prison-praising follower of Jesus that counts nothing as too much in the pursuit of holy, spirit-filled praise to a king. That is what the world needs to see, authenticity. Authenticity means to return to what the author intended. That's what authenticity, it doesn't mean I'm unique and, you know, original. Authentic means to return to the words of the author. Who's our author? And the finisher of our, who, that's him. That's what the world is after. Not people that go hashtag blessed. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Be real, be authentic. Be spirit and truth. Why? Because we have a mandate to spread the gospel, to see his kingdom advance, to do even greater things that Jesus did. And I want to offer this argument to you. But doing greater things is not necessarily because we're greater, it's just because we're more. Like it's a simple case of mathematics, I reckon. I think. Right, we can do greater things because there's a whole lot more of us. Jesus came to this world to show us what it is to live with the spirit of God in us. He showed us what that looks like. And so if two people are already doing double what Jesus did, if we live like that, if we live in spirit and truth, fully devoted, fully committed, fully surrendered. We're already doing that, right? Twice over. Now, could you imagine just here? That's like 80 times more, cheapers. That's exponential growth. So what do we do? We surrender. We adjust our attitudes. I adjust my posture and I get ready. That, my friends, is what this revival will look like. I know there's a stirring. You know there's a stirring. And that stirring is there because the foundations of the prisons that we have been in for so long is coming loose. It's like we reached the slumber, a state of slumber, I think, with COVID. People got very used to being in their PJs at home. You know, business at the top, party at the bottom pajamas at the bottom. I talked like that on my screen, I'm not gonna lie. And it became very easy to not commit to doing anything. And I think we've kind of cushioned it into this like hashtag family first kind of thing. Okay, yes, family do come first. But what about being with each other and being encouraged? I know it's very difficult. We're looking at life groups, right? And, and it's so hard to say like, Oh, I can't commit to every single week, but I can guarantee you dollars to donuts that you're going to walk away from that life group encouraged. You're going to walk away feeling like, yes, man, we are going in the same direction. So I want to encourage you, change your posture from one of slumber, change your attitude from one of passivity. I'm not saying that we are, I'm just saying if that is the case. I can tell you that I'm definitely talking to myself here as well. There's certain things, it's very easy to get busy. It's very easy, I mean, I'm very busy. Very easy to lose sight and to lose focus of what matters. And so if we're gonna be those people that worship in spirit and in truth, we have to actually listen for the truth. We have to listen for the spirit. 
So why don't we just take a moment, Ronnie, can I ask you to come up and...